raced straight back into the room um, to see the midwife who was looking after the patient um, doing some bag mask ventilation on this patient. Welcome to episode 19 of the Obs and Gynae Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back. This week I've managed to convince a good friend and colleague of mine, Nolan McDonnell, uh, to come and share a really interesting case that he had in early on in his career. Um, and so just as a way of introduction, Nolan, would, do you want to um, give us a one-liner to describe yourself uh, for, those, uh, for those listeners who uh, perhaps um, haven't met you before? Um, so yeah, thank you, Roger. So I'm a uh, New Zealander originally and moved to Perth in 2006 uh, to do my fellowship in obstetric anesthesia here at King Edward. Uh, so essentially, I'm an obstetric anesthetist and clinical associate professor with the University of Western Australia, uh, really with a prime uh, research interest in rare disorders of pregnancy, uh, along with another of, a number of other aspects associated with obstetric anesthesia. And uh, so the reason I asked you along today, Nolan, was um, to get you to share a really interesting case that I've um, heard you um, present before um, as a bit of a segue um, into the topic of um, amniotic fluid embolism. So uh, I guess probably the best thing to do would is just be to ask you if you could um, perhaps um, tell us all about the case. Excellent. Thanks, Roger. Um, and so... To cut a long story short, essentially, this, this particular case uh, was a case that really set my foundation in obstetric anesthesia and investigating rare disorders of pregnancy. And through this particular case, uh, I became the lead investigator for what's essentially our amniotic fluid embolism registry across Australia and New Zealand, which is centred in what we call AMOS, which is uh, a research methodology that we use for rare disorders of pregnancy. And so to set the scene for this particular case, uh, it was a weekend, um, early hours of the weekend morning, um, and I was on site for our delivery suite um, and a senior registrar at this point in New Zealand uh, in a large tertiary hospital. Um, and a lady came in in labour, um, essentially a post-dates uh, labouring woman who had a spontaneous rupture of membranes at home, uh, requested an epidural, um, and this was about five o'clock in the morning uh, that she requested her epidural. Um, went in there, um, did a relatively uncomplicated epidural. Probably the, one of the key things uh, from her epidural was our first pass of the epidural. We did a, or I did a venous cannulation. Um, so no local anaesthetic put down, but epidural was recited um, and had some ropivacaine and fentanyl down her epidural. Um, and about 10 minutes later, she was nice and comfortable um, at that point from her epidural. So um, by all intents and purposes, a pretty uncomplicated epidural at that particular point in time. Now, about 10 minutes after that, um, I'd gone back to our, uh, our office in the delivery suite and we had um, a medical emergency call to that room, essentially. Um, raced straight back into the room um, to see the midwife who was looking after the patient um, doing some bag mask ventilation on 
um, saying that she had had a funny taste in her mouth, um, followed by a seizure uh, and loss of consciousness with a respiratory arrest at that point. Um, and that's where everything really kicked in from that particular point in time. So, <clears throat> pretty challenging scenario, uh, Nolan. So I guess what was um, the the thing that comes to my mind, which um, when I, when you describe uh, what happened there, is um, trying to sort of, as well as manage the um, obviously all the anxiety around a collapse, a maternal collapse, is uh, trying to figure out what's going on. So, what? Um, how did you frame that? I mean, I know you probably thought about it a lot um, over the years, but um, how how would you approach this now? I guess when, in hindsight and uh, what sort of things do you think of and how do you differentiate them? Yeah, well, I think I think cases like this are, um, as much as they are horrendous when they occur, um, from a learning perspective and in terms of the way that shapes the rest of your career, they can be a, a really sort of sentinel event for the rest of your career. Um, and this particular event, as much as I was a senior registrar, very close to sending my part two exams, in essence showed me that at that particular point in time, so sort of 2004, 2005, that our syllabus and our curriculum placed very little emphasis on the differences associated with resuscitation of pregnant women. Um, there was really no teaching of the role of perimortem caesarean deliveries uh, in the collapsed obstetric patient, uh, and certainly very, very little information at all on amniotic fluid embolism at that particular point in time. In terms of our initial thinking, our working diagnosis in this case, primarily because we had that history of a funny taste and, uh, and seizures was local anaesthetic toxicity. Um, and so our management initially at that point in time was really just focused around trying to restore normal physiology for this lady. Um, and so we had ephedrine in the room and so she actually got a, an IV bolus of ephedrine. Um, cardiac output was back very quickly. Uh, from that particular point in time um, and so we then had some very rapid decisions to make um, given this was occurring in a delivery suite room and uh, what we were going to do from that particular point onwards. And so what happened? So um, we were fortunate that the hospital that uh, we worked in uh, actually had an operating theatre based in its delivery suite and this lady uh, collapsed um, across the corridor from our operating theatre. Um, now the classic teaching with a perimortem caesarean delivery is that you would do your caesarean delivery at the scene of your cardiac arrest. Uh, but this lady had a cardiac output back by that point in time. Uh, and so the decision was made that we would transfer her across the corridor onto the operating theatre table um, and proceed with an emergency caesarean delivery at that point in time. So essentially we raced across into the operating theatre, uh, gave her a very small dose of uh, sedative agent along with some succimethonium, uh, intubated her immediately, uh, and then the surgeons commenced a caesarean delivery. And so time from arrest to caesarean delivery at that point in time was actually 17 minutes, which Sounds long when you talk about our four to five minute rule with a perimortem caesarean delivery, but I think important to remember this lady had a cardiac output back. Um, and so when you do have a cardiac output back in that situation, your, uh, your time frames do adjust quite significantly. So very challenging um, sort of scenario. A couple of questions. So um, 
when you first arrived in the room and the nurse, uh, midwife was doing the bag mask ventilation, I presume there was no sort of evidence of um, circulation or pulse? No, no. So, so nothing at that particular point in time. And she was obviously, uh, she was blue um, and no, no evidence of any, uh, any central pulse, uh, pulses at that point in time. So chest compressions were started because ephedrine was, was right next to the bed, basically. She had a bolus of ephedrine. Um, yep. which obviously wouldn't normally be our first choice. Um, but in this situation, it was right there, and so she received a bolus of ephedrine. Yep. <clears throat> it's good. And I guess just for completion, I guess you um, you know, we've, we've mentioned the um, AFE and um, local anaesthetic toxicity. What's, for, for listeners out there who are try, trying to learn about um, maternal collapse, what are the sort of um, uh, differential diagnosis you should think of when you, uh, a woman collapses like this and has a cardiac arrest? Yeah, well, there's, there's a large number of potential causes. Um, the other thing is massive pulmonary embolism. Um, an eclamptic seizure uh, potentially could lead to this uh, particular situation. Yep. Uh, medications that might have been administered in pregnancy, and so there's a large number of medications that a lady might receive in labour. Um, we've talked about local anaesthetic toxicity and amniotic fluid embolism. Um, a significant haemorrhage, um, as well as... Uh, Potentially sepsis and anaphylaxis may also uh, yep. cause some of these, and um, and that covers most of the four H's and the four T's as well as part of our sort of differential diagnosis of collapse in pregnancy. Okay, that's good. And um, so, what happened after that? Yeah. So, in terms of what happened, uh, so baby came out, and um, the, on the maternal side of things, she she initially was actually quite stable, and so the cesarean delivery was done by a very experienced uh, senior obstetric registrar, um, and all actually went very very quickly. The baby came out, didn't have the best of atgars to begin with, had some meconium aspiration, um, but then was resuscitated very rapidly and sent to the nursery. Uh, and we uh, were pretty happy with the maternal state. Um, at that particular point in time. Um, but what was interesting is that she did have an increasing uh, vasopressor requirement in the uh, early stages of that uh, caesarean delivery. Uh, but when the surgeons had finished the caesarean delivery, uh, sutured the wound, and we were actually just getting ready to transfer her off the operating table onto the bed, they palpated her uterus. And there was a large amount of... Uh, of fluid essentially coming from her uterus. And when I say fluid, um, I guess it's one of those um, one of those little differentiating things that you can have in the back of your mind. I think we're all used to seeing clots getting expelled from a uterus. Um, but when you've got a significant coagulopathy, essentially, you often just see fluid um, in, in the sense of fresh blood and things coming out that's not obviously clotting with no clots associated with it. Um, and so this lady uh, essentially became rapidly coagulopathic. Um, so she had a massive amount of just fresh loss coming from her uterus at that particular point in time. Uh, so the decision was made um, to put her back onto the operating table um, and to further stabilise her, reopen her abdomen to see if there was any sites of macroscopic bleeding. Um, and to proceed from there. And so uh, various things happened in, in that regard. We uh, obviously did more blood tests. The uh, obstetric team brought in their obstetric consultant. I brought in my uh, anaesthetic consultant. Um, and that's where things 
really from that point in time started to really deteriorate for this particular lady. So she had a uh, dramatic increase in her vasopressor requirement, required uh, an FiO2 of 1 to maintain pretty poor oxygenation at that particular point in time. Uh, and she was critically unwell. Um, so she was very, very unwell. Um, and that's where where things started to get really interesting in this, this particular case in terms of what happened with her. <coughs> so pretty challenging. Um, what, what did you do? Um, I, I've heard this story before, but um, I think it's... Yeah, and so in terms of what we did, um, stabilised her as much as they could from the surgical side in terms of making sure there was no obvious uh, sites of haemorrhage intra-abdominally, uh, closed the abdomen um, and prepared her for transfer to our intensive care unit on site. Um, as part of all of that, uh, she was given some blood products to help correct any coagulopathy that was present um, and then transferred to our intensive care unit. Uh, and on admission to the intensive care unit, she was on industrial doses of noradrenaline uh, and adrenaline at that point in time, FiO2 of 1, um, and was essentially looking like she wasn't going to survive the next couple of hours. Um, her family was brought in for a family meeting to say that the outlook uh, was particularly poor for this lady, um, but that we would continue to do what we could to resuscitate her. Um, and in terms of what happened from that point in time, uh, the intensive care team called in one of our cardiac anaesthetists um, who was experienced in transesophageal echocardiography. Remembering this is you know, over a decade ago, so uh, while it was still commonly used by cardiac anaesthesia, it wasn't uh, in as much use by intensivists and, and other general anaesthetists. Um, and on transesophageal echo, essentially it showed severe acute right ventricular failure um, and significant pulmonary hypertension. Um, and the, the thought was that it was the pulmonary hypertension which was causing that acute right ventricular failure. Nothing to suggest a massive pulmonary embolism at that point in time. Uh, and so the therapy was targeted to uh, relax her pulmonary va uh, vasculature. Uh, and fortunately the intensive care unit had uh, a nitric oxide uh, service basically and so they started nitric oxide in this lady. Um, and the results of that were dramatic uh, in the sense that uh, over the space of an hour, her FiO2 came down uh, in real time being assessed on transesophageal echo. Uh, her right heart failure significantly improved um, and she was just on a small amount of adrenaline uh, within the space of an hour basically. So completely reversed her cardiac uh, pathology in terms of what was happening at that particular point in time. Um, and just a, it was a landmark case on a few levels. Um, a landmark case in that it was the um, really the first documented case of nitric oxide being used in a case of amniotic fluid embolism. Um, and I think it was I think it was about the fourth case where uh, there was echocardiography also performed in a case of amniotic fluid embolism. So um, there was a few landmarks from that particular case in terms of what happened. Um, in terms of the longer term outcomes for this particular lady, uh, essentially she remained ventilated in uh, the intensive care unit um, for another couple of days, had a four day stay in ICU, um, had a bit of renal impairment uh, which all resolved uh, prior to discharge, 
Um, but essentially she uh, made a full recovery, her baby made a full recovery, uh, and she's since gone on to have a subsequent uncomplicated pregnancy. Well, it's a really fascinating and um, uh, educational um, uh, case. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us, Noel. Thanks, everyone. Join Nolan and myself on next week's podcast where we take a bit more of a deep dive into the topic of amniotic fluid embolism. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time.